Thanks, Anna. And once again, we are glad that you're here today, and um, especially on this uh, special sort of a holiday weekend, kind of a strange holiday weekend this year as we celebrate our freedom and our independence. But of course, our biggest celebration is the freedom that we have uh, in Jesus Christ. So um, thank you to Hannah and of course to Kissy for leading us in worship. And uh, Jordan, thanks for that word. And Omar, so great uh, to see you and so encouraged by your greeting and to, from you and your mom. And um, so anyway, we've got, as I said before, we've got a big day today. We want to jump right in. Uh, so turn to Acts chapter 17. We're going to look at the first uh, about 10 verses of this chapter. Uh, you remember that we looked last week at what was the Apostle Paul's entire experience at Philippi. Uh, what started out kind of this seemingly slow start to his big Macedonian European ministry. And remember that we watched things grow from just a few very well planted individual gospel seeds to what was really the beginning of what would become a beautiful church fellowship there in the city of Philippi. And this morning, as we turn the page to chapter 17, we're going to look at the experience of Paul and his missionary team in the very next city of Thessalonica. And what we're going to see this morning is we're going to watch the Apostle Paul uh, use the power, really, of the Old Testament scriptures to build what is a very compelling case for Jesus for the Thessalonians there. He calls on thousands of years of testimony from scores and scores of different witnesses about him so that the Thessalonians can then respond with a very reasonable faith to the gospel of Jesus. And if you're not a believer this morning, I think that you're going to find that the evidence indeed is compelling. And for those of us who perhaps already do believe, uh, my heart is that we would be super encouraged just as we're reminded about the very sure foundation of our faith. And yet I think we're also perhaps going to be a little bit challenged that that foundation has very clear uh, implications, if you will, in how it is that we live out our Christian lives today. So let's pray and just ask the Lord to really bless uh, our time in his word this morning. So Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for everyone, Lord, that has made this morning possible, Lord, for everyone that's participated in putting this service together, Lord. We thank you uh, first and foremost, Lord, for for you and for your son, Jesus, Lord, for your ongoing work in our lives. Father, we uh, thank you for your word and pray that, Lord, as we go to it this morning, Father, we pray that you would help just to settle and to quiet our hearts. Lord, help to limit any distractions that would keep us from hearing clearly from your spirit as he opens up and illuminates your heart to us today. We ask your blessing, Lord, on this time, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So remember last week, uh, Paul's ministry there in the city of Philippi. Remember, it started out just right there on the banks of a river to this group of faithful, God-fearing women. And they had gathered together there for prayer because there weren't enough men in the city for the formation of a synagogue. And we saw the salvation of Lydia. And then we saw her wonderful hospitality as she welcomed the entire team into her home to stay. We also watched then, remember, as Paul confronted and then he cast out that satanic demon who had oppressed and was possessing that young slave girl. Remember then her masters, because they'd lost their income, they trumped up some charges, they stirred up this crowd, and they got Paul and Silas eventually arrested, beaten, and thrown into jail, which was good news as it led to the salvation, of course, of the Philippian jailer and his entire household on the same night. Remember, we watched as Paul and Silas finally were released from jail, and then they were run out of town, taking young Timothy with them, but leaving Dr. Luke behind 
to care for and to shepherd this fledgling group of brand new believers. And remember in our final verse of our text last time in Acts chapter 16, in verse 40, it said that when they had seen the brethren, they encouraged them and departed. And then we see next they head further out to the west, deeper into that new continent of Europe. So picking up this morning, in uh, verse 1 of chapter 17, we're going to see that the kingdom continues to progress. Look what it says. It says, now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. So here once again, an example, Luke's beautiful economy of writing, this journey of what would have been over a hundred miles, probably a three-day trek, he quickly dismisses in just a sentence, right? It sounds kind of like a pleasant Sunday afternoon stroll, but in fact, Philippi was a full 33 Roman miles from Amphipolis. Amphipolis was 30 more miles until you got to Apollonia. And then Apollonia was another 37 miles from Thessalonica. And all of these were located along what was called the Via Ignatia, or what we would know as the Ignatian Way. And it was this great Roman road that ran all the way from the Adriatic Sea in the west all the way through to the Middle East. And in fact, the main street of this city city of Thessalonica was actually part of that road. So Thessalonica was a, a predominantly Greek city, though at the time it was controlled by Rome. Not only was it the capital of this entire region of Macedonia, but it was an important city. It was a, a major commercial center. Uh, as well, it would be a strategic city for the work of the Lord. Because with Christianity firmly founded there, in Thessalonica, it could very easily spread both to the east as well as to the west along that main Roman road until the, the Ignatian Way became a virtual highway, if you will, for the progress of the kingdom of God. And so we notice that on the way to Thessalonica, notice it says that Paul passed quickly through both Amphipolis as well as Apollonia. And I think that this seemingly small detail is actually important. I think it's instructive for us because it highlights what was becoming Paul's policy, which was to minister in the larger cities and then to make them the hubs for the evangelizing of the whole district around it. So the idea here is perhaps the people there in Philippi would have reached out and ministered to nearby Amphipolis. And then it would be the people who were one to Christ here in Thessalonica who would take the gospel back, if you will, to Apollonia. And it's important for us to recognize this because here Paul is already putting into place what he would preach later when he writes to the Ephesian church as he really describes this dynamic on which the entire work of the church is based. It's where he writes in Ephesians 4, speaking of Jesus, that he gave some to be apostles and some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry. So understand that in order for the gospel message to reach those uttermost parts of the earth, as Jesus had directed, for God's people to be cared for and to be ministered to as they were coming into the church, this entire work couldn't rest in the hands of just a few specific apostles and disciples. It had to have a much larger, a much more scalable view. And so we see that in God's economy, it is all of God's people who are to be equipped to do the real work of the ministry so that the body of Christ is built up or that, that it's expanded and that it's strengthened so that it can go do more work for the ministry. So the leaders in the church 
whether it was then or now, the leaders in the church are gifted to serve the people of the church, equipping them so that they can then go out and serve other people. So there's always this beautiful exponential kind of limitless potential for more growth and for more ministry and most importantly for more lives to be touched and transformed with the gospel of Jesus. And so I think for Paul already seeing the scope here of the possibilities there was this urgency in Paul's heart kind of to get in and to get out and to get the gospel into the hands of as many new believers as was possible and then to turn them loose just to reproduce themselves. And I think this may also help us to understand why it was that he pressed on through those towns right to Thessalonica because as we see from this verse, Luke tells us that in this major strategic city, there was also what? A synagogue of the Jews. And we know that this was Paul's preferred place to start gospel ministry, to start sharing Jesus as the fulfillment of that Jewish messianic hope. So a synagogue always provided this excellent sort of first point of contact for the gospel. And so we read next in verse 2, it says that then Paul, as his custom was, went into them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the scriptures. So he goes to those who had an understanding of the Old Testament, at least somewhat instructed in the ways of God. And then Paul's plan was now to explain what would be the culmination of God's plan of salvation. Remember, we've talked about the fact that when Paul walked into any synagogue, it would have been very obvious by the way that he carried himself, maybe by the way, the style with which he spoke, it would be very obvious that he was a learned scholar, that he was a respected rabbi. And as we've seen before, as was the custom in those days, the leader or the ruler of the synagogue would very respectfully turn over a part of that Sabbath meeting to a visiting rabbi of Paul's stature. And so it provided Paul with this perfect platform to show how the gospel message has its roots in the very Old Testament scriptures that they were studying each and every Sabbath. And notice specifically for us this morning how it was that he did this. Luke tells us that Paul, what? He reasoned with them from the scriptures. And that Greek word reasoned is the root for our English word dialogue which is to say that there was a healthy exchange of questions and answers. This was a, a conversation. Paul was dialoguing with them from the scriptures. And I think that this right here is such an important, maybe an admonition for us, because so often our great failure in our evangelistic efforts or simply in just sharing our faith is that we do too much preaching and we do not nearly enough dialoguing because of course people rarely want to be talked at right they want to be talked with now admittedly there are times when preaching is appropriate and where dialoguing can be difficult like on a sunday morning like this but built into all of our efforts, not only if it's trying to win the lost, but also built into our efforts of equipping the saints, there need to be times when our faith can be talked about, where the, there's, it's a safe environment for an exchange of ideas, people to work out and to really get to the bottom of and to start understanding their faith. And a part of that exchange or of this dialogue is what we see next, Luke tells us, Paul did, just in the first two words of verse 3. Remember, at the end of verse 2, it says that Paul reasoned with them from the Scriptures. At the beginning of verse 3, we see that he was explaining and demonstrating, it says. And the sense of that word there, explaining, it's interesting, it simply means to open up. So Paul was opening up the Scriptures, 
right, with simplicity and with clarity. And certainly it's what we pray we're trying to do here each and every time we teach, right? But also that he was demonstrating, and that word is more like giving evidence. So he was giving evidence from the scriptures that these assertions he, were, he was making were accurate. So altogether, I think we have this wonderful picture of the Apostle Paul engaged in this very intellectual kind of a back and forth with the students of the scriptures all day, each Sabbath day for three weeks. And notice in the rest of verse three, notice what was the point, sort of the pinnacle, if you will, of Paul's entire approach. He was reasoning, verse three, he was explaining, demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ. So circle that verse because Paul's emphasis here in all of his approach was on who Jesus is, that he's the Christ, and on what Jesus had done for them, that he had suffered and that he had risen again from the dead. Paul was very careful to focus on the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ because that is the message of the gospel. And I love the way that one author put it. He says that Christianity is, in its very essence, a resurrection religion. He says the concept of resurrection lies at its heart. If you remove it, Christianity is destroyed. And so I think as we see beautifully in the ministry here of the Apostle Paul, remember that the key to opening the scriptures is always to look for, to talk about, to focus on the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Whether we're sharing with children or whether we're talking to a neighbor or whether we're teaching some sort of a Bible study, the key to preparing people's hearts to be opened by the Spirit to the truth of the gospel is not to look for, you know, some kind of successful life strategies or even methods of marital communication, but we should be looking for Jesus Christ. All of those other things are certainly part of our faith. But at its root, our faith is not in a philosophy and our faith is not in principles. Our faith is in a person. And we'll be so much more effective in our ministry for him if we can just simply accept and learn and put into practice this simple lesson to talk about Jesus, look for Jesus, point people always to the work of Jesus because he's the key to opening up the scriptures. Again, Paul says there that he was demonstrating what? That the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead. Now understand that this was a particularly challenging concept for these Jewish and these God-fearing students of the scriptures that were here in the synagogue. They understood the concept of a clear coming of a suffering Messiah from passages like Isaiah chapter 53. They also understood the coming, the concept of a, a clear coming of a conquering Messiah from passages like Psalm 2. But what they couldn't understand was how these could possibly be one in the same Messiah. So what they had done in trying to reconcile this, they actually came up with the concept of two different messiahs. There was a reigning messiah that they referred to as Messiah ben David, right after Israel's most righteous ruling King David. And then there was a suffering messiah that they referred to as Messiah ben Joseph, named after the Old Testament hero Joseph, who suffered unjustly at the hands of his brethren. And so here in the synagogue, Paul was opening up the scriptures to them and explaining how both sets of these prophecies were perfectly fulfilled in one person. To explain how Jesus, the son of Joseph, was the suffering Messiah who was crucified on the cross, and then how after three days, that same Jesus, the son of David, 
rose from the dead to rule and reign forever. And all Paul had to do to demonstrate this was to lay it out for them to consider for themselves because there was already a compelling case written in the scriptures. That word demonstrating, which we said means to give evidence, what it literally means is to place beside or to set before. And so what Paul was doing was he took all of these prophecies of the Messiah and he simply laid them alongside of the life and the ministry of Jesus of Nazareth and showed that they were a perfect match. More than 300 prophecies given over a period of 4,000 years from the Old Testament, which Jesus fulfilled just in his first coming. One Old Testament proof after another that Jesus of Nazareth is Messiah God. And all of this is to say that our faith is a reasonable faith, that God has gone to such great lengths to ensure that we need not to blindly just put our faith in faith for the sake of faith, but that our faith can rest firmly in the evidence. And in fact, it's interesting, if you look around, even just today, so many of Christianity's greatest thinkers started out as atheists. They started out as skeptics who actually set out to prove that the Christian faith was based on fables. Men like C.S. Lewis, all the way up to you know, Lee Strobel, Josh McDowell, even Ravi Zacharias, who just went home to be with the Lord. All of these men, and yet as they sincerely started to evaluate the evidence, hoping to disprove it, but as their hearts were open to the conclusions that they came to, each one of these men was converted. In fact, it's sometimes said, you know, what do you call a skeptic, the skeptic that sets out to prove that the Bible is wrong? You call them a Christian. Because oftentimes they end up surrendering to Jesus the more they really investigate and the more they learn about him. You know, it was to his people through the prophet Isaiah that the Lord declared, come, he said, let us reason together. He said, come, let's dialogue together. Let's talk through these things. Let's work through some of these issues that you're having. And so maybe you're with us this morning and you do have questions about your faith, or maybe you have questions about taking that first step of faith and that's okay. Because you see, not only does the Lord know you have questions, not only does he welcome the questions that you have, but he's a God that has already actually answered all of those questions in the person and the work of Jesus. And then he has made those things available and he's given us evidence that is overwhelming. You know, in the scriptures, God has given us this amazing prophetic portrait of the Messiah so that when the Messiah did come into human history, that every single person would be able to recognize him for who he was and who he is. And Paul's goal here was in founding the people's faith there in Thessalonica on the fulfillment of of those prophetic scriptures. So if you're, if you're new at all to the Bible, it's so very important that you understand the incredible prophetic element associated with the life of Jesus. Again, these prophecies given by God so that we would be able to recognize him when he came to provide us with salvation when he came to be able to provide us with forgiveness of our sins and the ability to be reconciled back together with our creator God. God is never calling on anyone. He never has called on anyone to put our faith in Jesus blindly. But what he's called us to do is to have a reasoned faith, to have a reasonable faith based upon the fact that 
that Jesus is a perfect match for all of those prophetic prophecies that are given to us about the Messiah that would come. And then the question becomes, very simply, what are we going to do with that compelling case for Jesus that God has given us? Right, This divine, sort of a prophetic portrait that we find in the scriptures, I would not bet even one dollar that this was a portrait of anyone else at all in all of human history other than Jesus. And certainly, you know, to give this tremendous weight to his words about my need to be saved. And then the possibility of actually being saved by putting my trust in him and in his death and in his burial and in his resurrection all on my behalf. So that all of that sin that overwhelms me and separates me from God can be taken out of the way. I would not certainly bet a dollar on it. I would not bet my eternity on it to be sure. What more could God possibly do to help us to believe except to force us to believe? Which would make it a meaningless decision on our part. But instead, he's given us this supernatural, this miraculous, this very reasonable faith, and he's revealed it to us here in his word. Now, when, when Luke tells us that for three weeks, right, Paul was reasoning this, presenting this evidence on the Sabbath there in the synagogue, laying out all of these things about Jesus for them to consider, what it doesn't mean is that Paul and his team only stayed three weeks in Thessalonica, but more so probably that Paul carried on this first phase of the work there with a real Jewish emphasis for three Sabbaths, and then turned more so to the Gentiles and continued to minister to them outside of the synagogue for some weeks after that. Now, we don't know exactly how long they ministered there in Thessalonica. We do know from Philippians chapter 4 that they were there at least long enough for Paul to receive financial help from the church at Philippi two different times. They sent him help there in Thessalonica. We also know that while he was there, Paul worked in Thessalonica as a tent maker to support himself as he was teaching and as he was ministering the word. So it wasn't probably a super long ministry there in Thessalonica, but it was a very fruitful one. Because look next at what we read. In verse 4, Paul was here focused on revealing Jesus in the pages and the prophecies of the Old Testament. And it says that some of them were persuaded and a great multitude of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women joined Paul and Silas. So take note of this too, because by focusing first on the Lord Jesus, by pointing to him in the scriptures, the response here from the people was overwhelming. Notice it wasn't Paul's excellence of speech. It was his exposition of the scriptures. That's what compelled these people to believe. A great multitude, it says, of those Greeks, the ones who'd been seeking after the Lord through the Jewish religion. And when Luke says it's not a few of the leading women, that's his way of saying that there were a lot of the influential women who came. We know, of course, that there were also many men, some of whom we're going to see, a little, see a little bit later in Acts chapter 20. Uh, Aristarchus, Secundus, both of those men would actually become co-laborers for Christ with Paul and start to travel with him. Once again, we see that the gospel message, we see it received by men and women of all different kinds, different backgrounds, different races, different nationalities, different social standings. And once again, that's the power of the gospel, that it's available and it is effective for anyone and everyone at any time in any place. But notice specifically, Luke points out that this gospel message was especially well received by these Greek Gentiles. 
right? Those who'd been seeking after the God of Israel because they had already, already grown weary of the emptiness of the pagan religions in that culture. And like so many people today, maybe even like some of you tuned in here today, you've grown weary of what little satisfaction life seems to have to offer. You're constantly searching for answers. You're, it's like a never-ending quest for fulfillment and happiness and seeking some sort of a contentment in life. And it seems almost like the more you achieve, you know, the more you amass, the more empty you are. That search for significance seems that there's that gnawing sense within you that there's something better, that there is something higher, there is something more substantial that you were put here on this planet to experience. And so like these Greeks, you continue to seek until you hear about this one true God, this one true God who is said to have revealed himself to all of mankind through his son, this one true God, a God of righteousness and of justice who is unchanging and steadfast and faithful and filled with loving kindness, a God of mercy who's full of grace. And so like these Greeks... Right? They've learned from the Jews something of this one true and living God. They've looked at this compelling case that Paul has given them for the way to get to him. So now they were so very eager to receive that Savior that God had provided. And so a multitude came and they were converted, just like you could come and you could be converted even today. But... Look at verse 5. In verse 5 it says, But the Jews who were not persuaded, becoming envious, took some of the evil men from the marketplace, and gathering a mob, set all the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, and sought to bring them out to the people. So just as is always the case, here Satan brings opposition from the unbelievers. And exactly as we've seen at Pisidian Antioch and then at Iconium and then again at Lystra on that first missionary journey, here also Paul was opposed by this rioting mob, this mob that had been incited by these Jews who were envious because there were Gentiles that were enjoying the grace of the true and living God. They were filled with this sense of indignation and of envy for what they saw happening with those people. And because they didn't want to appear openly to be persecutors, what does it say? They gathered up this group of these kind of rabble rousers and they very artfully aroused the prejudices in them and they moved them to go and make this assault on the house of Jason. Now, Jason was probably a brand new believer. Some even suggest possibly that he was a, a, a relative of Paul, but he was apparently housing the missionary team there at his house. What's interesting, I think, is that later, we know that Paul will write to the Romans that his hope was that the salvation of the Gentiles would provoke the Jews into studying the scriptures and discovering their promised Messiah, Jesus. In Romans 11, he says, Have they stumbled that they should fall? Speaking of the Jews, certainly not. But through their fall, to provoke them to jealousy, he says, salvation has come to the Gentiles. And it's ironic because in this case, it didn't provoke them to seek after the Messiah. It provoked them in persecuting those who were his followers. They manufactured a riot, dragging Paul and Silas, trying to get him out of Jason's home. And yet in verse 6, it says, But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some brethren to the rulers of the city, crying out that these who have turned the world upside down have come here too. Now, when we think about it, this angry mob had a legitimate complaint here. And they actually 
paid Paul and his team, I'm sure, an unintended compliment when they made this accusation. Because the truth was that this missionary team indeed was engaged in the work of turning the world upside down. But the reason was that through sin, the world had been turned wrong side up. So when the gospel is preached, and here when people are believing, things were actually being reversed and set right. Because when you are wrong side up, then upside down is actually right side up. That makes sense? When man rebelled against the Lord back in the Garden of Eden, it caused the world to be plunged into rebellion. It's fallen now. Therefore, the world is not at all what it was supposed to be. It's not at all what it was ever intended to be. And so we are living in an upside-down world. And the world doesn't like anything that tries to challenge its upside-downness. And so what this mob was really saying is, hey, these guys have radically impacted our world and things just don't seem the same that they used to be. And yet, isn't that precisely why the Lord Jesus came? Isn't that precisely what he came to do was to turn our world upside down, to turn the thinking, to turn the values, to turn the power structures of the world around. Remember back in Luke chapter 16, Jesus gives us this great example of this kind of upside down thinking that needs to be turned right side up. Remember when he was talking about that rich man who had great wealth and all that this guy could think about was building bigger and bigger barns to store more and more of his stuff. We think today about those people that we would look at and we would think are the picture of success. They have prominence and they have power and they have wealth and they have influence and they have comfort and they live in luxury. But Jesus turns all of that thinking upside down. And what he says to this wealthy man is fool. He says, this night your soul will be required of you and then whose will those things be which you have provided? So is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. You see, in, in the right side up thinking of heaven, Jesus called this man a fool because he had done nothing to make his life matter for God's kingdom. Jesus came to change the way that we think. He came to refocus and to reshift our priorities and our plans in light of the real realities of heaven and of eternity so that then we could go out ourselves and do the very same thing in the upside-down world around us. Wouldn't we wish that people could say these same such things about how effective we as Christians are at impacting the world today, that we were turning things upside down. And what's really interesting is that I think that the key for us being able to do this, we're actually going to see next, as this crowd continues its complaints against Paul and his team, because what we know is that turning things right side up has to start and come from the top down. And look at how the angry mob, I think, unknowingly says that very thing in the next accusation they make. In verse 7, it says, they say, Jason has harbored them, and these are all acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king Jesus. So think about this. Their first accusation focused simply on the fact that these men were upsetting the status quo, but this accusation focused specifically on the fact that they were saying that we should be serving a different king. And so the charge here against Paul and Silas was nothing less than treason, 
right? That they were plotting an overthrow of the government of Caesar by preaching about this other king, Jesus. Now, just as a quick side note, isn't it ironic to say the least that the Jews here who stir up this mob, all of a sudden these Jews are so very zealous for protecting the government of Caesar, considering that the Jews hated the Romans. But what's interesting, I think, and instructive again for us, is that when we look at the very specific words that the exacting Dr. Luke records for us in this verse, that Greek word that he uses that's translated another, speaking of Jesus being another king besides Caesar, it means another of a different kind. That is that Jesus is a king, but he's a king unlike Caesar. And when we read Paul's two letters to the Thessalonians, we do see a very strong emphasis that he gave when he was there in Thessalonica on the kingship of Jesus and on the promise of the return and the reign of him as the king. But of course, we know that our Lord's kingdom is neither political nor, as Jesus himself said, neither is it even of this world. So the kingship of Jesus is unlike that of any of the rulers of the world today. It's a, a kingship where he conquers using ambassadors, not using armies. His weapons are truth and are love and not violence. He brings peace by upsetting the peace, right? By turning things upside down. And ultimately, he conquers through the cross. He conquers through the cross where he died for a world of lost sinners. Even, Paul tells us, this king died for his enemies. As he would write to the Romans that while we were still sinners, that Christ died for us. So what kind of a king does that? for his subjects only one king king jesus right he is truly a different kind of king and he's not here to overthrow the rule of caesar but he is here to overthrow the rule of sin in our lives but even here notice as this mob makes this kind of unfounded accusation that there's some sort of a political plan for a, a revolution. These evil men in the marketplace, they did get this one thing right, that the Christians did teach that Jesus was a king and that they understood that as king, that Jesus has the right to rule over his people. And truth be told, this is a message that seems to really be missed and seems to be misunderstood by so many Christians today. Because this is a message that really does have implications about how it is that we live out our faith on a day-to-day -day basis. If we are really his followers, if we are really his subjects of this right-side-up kingdom and of not the upside-down kingdom of this present world, if we are really his subjects, then we owe not only our allegiance, but we owe him our obedience as well. That we should value the things that our king values. We should allow him to lead in our lives, and we need to allow him to lead in each and every arena of our lives, whether it's our relationships or our finances or the way we spend our time or directions and decisions that we are considering. Because as we mentioned just a couple of weeks back, we are neither equipped nor were we ever intended to govern ourselves, but we were designed to submit ourselves to the loving leadership of our gracious King. And frankly, it's when we can start to really do that, when we can start to really submit ourselves to Jesus as king, that's when we will really start to bring about change, both in our lives personally and then in this upside-down world culturally. You may have heard uh, the story of the child who remarked 
that the New Testament, he says, the New Testament ends with the book of revolutions. <laughs> and it's when our Christianity really goes into action, it will cause a mighty revolution, not necessarily primarily a political one, but more importantly, a revolution in the lives of believers individually, and then also a revolution in society culturally, as we live out that new kingship and those values every day. Look at verse 8. It says that they troubled the crowd and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. And so when they had taken security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. Now understand something about Roman officials. In general, they didn't care what the people believed. The only thing they did care about was when the public order and when the peace was threatened by a disruptive riot. And I think that the rulers in the city here of Thessalonica, frankly, I don't think that they knew what to think about all of this. They were perplexed when they heard these things. And so not knowing exactly what they should do, but knowing that they had to do something, they made Jason post some sort of a bond, right? Something promising that Paul and his accomplice Silas would not cause any more trouble. And I think this is so telling because the, the truth is that the unbelieving world neither understand nor do they know exactly what to do when they're confronted with the kingdom of heaven and the kingship of Jesus as it's lived out before them through the lives of Jesus' people. So look finally, just the, the beginning of verse 10, we see that their mission, I'm sorry, yeah, verse 10, their mission is accomplished. It says in verse 10 that then the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, where they arrived. Uh, when they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. Now, if you're keeping count, this is now the fifth city so far during these first two trips where Paul has been effectively run out of town. And yet, what do they do? Off they go to the next one. And I don't know about you, but I think at this point, I would be getting pretty burned out by being repeatedly beaten or imprisoned or run out by an angry mob every time I set foot in a new city. And yet not Paul, not Paul's partner Silas, not his protege Timothy. They just kept right on going for it. Their mission there had been completed, right? The seeds of the gospel had been planted in this city. There was now a large group of these new believers. There was the beginnings of what would be a very healthy church. And so there they went on to their next mission field. I think it was missionary David Livingstone who once was quoted, he said, I don't care which direction I go as long as it's forward. And what a wonderful start I think we see here to this gospel in Thessalonica. Paul building this very compelling case for Jesus right from the Old Testament scriptures, reasoning with them about their reasonable response to these things that they're studying, allowing the Spirit of God to use the Word of God to really speak life into the hearts of a multitude of these pagan people. These pagan people who I believe were weary from their search for something that would satisfy them in their lives. And I think also what a great reminder we see in our text today as believers that King Jesus he really does have the right to rule and to reign and to sit on the throne of each one of our lives. And so, again, it's Independence Day weekend. And so as we celebrate our independence, I just have to say, let's remember that we celebrated, I think, by declaring our ability to be dependent on our true King Jesus and to follow after his leading for our lives. Amen. Amen. So Father, we thank you again for this morning, Lord. We thank you for so much that you've done, uh, the, so much that you continue to do, Lord. We thank you for so much that we know 
that you desire to do, Lord, more than we could even ask or think in each and every one of our lives. And so, Lord, we, uh, we pray that that would start even now. Lord, we pray that your spirit would minister these truths to our hearts. Lord, we pray that he would help us to see areas where we may need to make changes in our lives, Lord. We pray for any of those who are hearing these things, Lord, who aren't yet believers. Lord, we pray that even now that your spirit would be ministering, Lord, that he would be drawing them unto you, Lord, that he would be quickening their spirits, Lord, that they would be able to make that commitment to turn their lives over, to trust, to put their faith in your son, Jesus, Lord, for their eternal salvation. So, Lord, we pray for them. Lord, we hold them up to you and we entrust them to you. Lord, we would ask that you would just bless them, Lord. We ask that you would bless us as we go out serving our rightful King, Lord. We thank you and we praise you. And we do it in Jesus' name. Amen. I love you, Lord, and I lift my voice to worship you. Oh, my soul, rejoice. Take joy, my King, in what you hear. Let it be a sweet, sweet sound in your ear. Let it be a sweet, sweet sound in your ear. Amen. Amen. God bless you this week. And I just pray that he would really pour out his grace upon you and that he would enable you and equip you that by the power of his spirit, that you would go out and serve him and love him and, uh, and share that love of his with everyone that you come in contact with. So hope to see you tonight at Wisman Park. Uh, we won't see you tomorrow night for prayer, but we will see you Wednesday night as we uh, get together for regroup. And uh, God bless you all. Have a blessed day.